I'm the son of immigrants and I grew up in a relatively white society. The flip side of that is I grew up around a lot of folks who did not look like me. So I'm known as what's known as a third culture kid. In the house was one culture, the Filipino culture. Outside of the house uh, was, you know, predominantly white culture. And inside of me was this amalgamation, this third culture. But as a part of that being a third culture kid, I didn't fit in anywhere. And I felt a little bit left out at times and ostracized or a little behind. And so a lot of what's driving me uh, to this day is not wanting to feel left out, to feel that I belong. Every week on More Than Profit, we explore the stories of leaders, entrepreneurs, and investors who have made a difference in the world while building successful businesses. We sit down with each guest and dive into their personal journey their struggles and triumphs, and the lessons they've learned along the way. On this episode of More Than Profit, we sit down with Eddie Padrina, the CEO of Eden Green, an ad tech company that is changing the way we grow food and feed people. Eddie is driven by systems thinking and frameworks to grow and scale organizations. Previously, he was the co-founder and president of BuzzShift, the first digital strategy agency for mid-sized brands and organizations in America. Eddie has over 20 years of experience in strategic planning, marketing, and PR, including roles at the U.S. Department of State and executive leadership in the White House. Through each of these experiences, Eddie has learned the value of getting into neutral and order to better understand how best to step forward in life. His vulnerability about his time with a counselor is a helpful encouragement for anyone in leadership, as he has learned how to feel valued in whatever he is doing. So in 2020, during COVID, we moved onto a, a farm. My family and I bought 12 acres. I call it a farm, but it's more like a gentleman's farm. I'm a hobbyist farmer. In fact, our tagline uh, that I've been joking around with is we're feeding the wildlife since 2019. Just because everything I buy seems to get eaten by, by, by the coyotes, by the bald eagles. But you know, farming is just, it's something I've grown up around. Grandparents, farmers. I spent some of my formative years in Iowa around kind of farming Brian, you too, like you have some farming in your background, right? Well, I don't want to toot my own horn, but yes, we have, I grew up farming. I grew up in Wheaton, Illinois, but I spent my summers in Buckland, Kansas. There was, we were wheat farmers. So I'm actually, I own farms in Iowa and in, in Kansas. So yeah, very powerful person. If that's what you're wondering. Are you guys still farming wheat or have you guys diversified or what? So wheat, well, feed corn and soy in Iowa and then wheat, primarily wheat and some, some flowers in Kansas, but yeah, but not to the same level as our guest that we have in, in the office today. Eddie Bedrina is our guest out of Texas. So, and again, I'm like all of you thinking what good comes from Texas? Nothing, but <laughs> there is one exception. Eddie Bedrina is an awesome, awesome person, even though he lives in Texas. But unlike our traditional farming, Eddie's kind of uh, he's a future farmer. So Next level farmer is what I call them. So Eddie, tell us just in a nutshell, a little bit about your business. What kind of farming do you do? So Eden Green is the name of the company and we're a, a next gen agriculture company. So we are able to shrink 40 acres of conventional farming of lettuce right now and, and herbs down to about an acre and a half. And we put them right next to distribution centers or so I call it cold storage aggregators, if you will. And thus you, you pretty much eliminate all distribution and logistics costs for that crop. 
and we do that we have a, a patented technology that allows us to grow vertically but in a greenhouse so i think a lot of folks have this idea of like okay vertical farming and they think of you know fast company or wired and they see these kind of huge light intensive type uh, indoor vertical farms in our industry we call them black box vertical farms because they're in warehouses right and they eliminate all the sunlight which they do it for control's sake but you're also eliminating all the sunlight right so you got to provide light somehow that's through artificial lighting so we combine that verticality but we actually use a greenhouse so 80 to 90 percent of of the plants light needs come through the sun and is that more expensive building a build out on that versus like a black box yeah so it's more expensive than a flat tray greenhouse which the dutch and the french have perfected for about 40 years right if you've eaten a tomato in the last 10 years which brian you probably don't <laughs> that's not true i love <laughs> i love tomatoes yeah i understand that but if you do like bryce and myself then in the last 10 years you've eaten a tomato out of a greenhouse or what we call a hot house right so it's very very much a you know, a known quantity. So it's more expensive than a greenhouse to build, but less expensive than an indoor vertical farm by significant factor. So you didn't start the company. You went over as their CEO. Is that what happened? It's a pretty interesting story. Like unlike you who has farms or Bryce's gentleman farm, which that sounds really kind of off. I don't know, like <laughs> gentleman's farm. <laughs> We'll talk about that later. It's a Kentucky term. I think it more deals like the horse racing industry. Go with that. Nobody uses that term other than Bryce, and we'll never use it again. I'm I'm sorry to the listeners. <laughs> it's a Bryce euphemism. <laughs> Unlike either of y'all, I don't have any farming background, so which was pretty odd. But this is no regular farm. So my background, I've, I've had sort of three stages of my career. One was in government. Uh, the second was uh, running a, a digital marketing agency that I started from scratch with a business partner. And then the third one is is this. And how I got to this, sort of the story arc, if you will, is with government, I started very early on in my career, was in the Bush administration from 2001 to 2006, culminating as President Bush's Asian American spokesperson for 04 to 06. And then after that personal side of the story, it all looks really good on paper and maybe even in the press, but it was horrible for my marriage. So we decided to be done with that chapter of our lives. And I pressed a hard reset on my career and moved back to Texas where both my wife, Rachel and I are from. And so from there, spent about four years in the career wilderness, if you will, before jumping on and with a business partner and starting a company called BuzzShift, which is one of the first digital marketing agencies in the United States. So we, we grew that from scratch, bootstrapped that from 2010 to 2016. I sold it and then we bought it back 11 months later. And why did you buy it back? What were the reasons? Well, it was a dollar. So we got a pretty good deal on it. Basically, I mean, to put it charitably, the acquiring company bought a Ferrari and then used it for groceries. They really didn't know what they were using it for. And so we had an opportunity to buy it back at a steep discount, obviously. And so we did. Again, this is probably a pattern in my life, actually, of things looking really good on the outside, but inside it's questionable. When I bought it back, when you sell something that you've started from scratch, and any entrepreneur hearing this will know this, you sort of have to divorce yourself from it emotionally, right? It's your baby that you raised, and now it's off to college. But 
when you sell it, you're just done with it. And so I had to go through sort of an emotional period of just being differentiated from it. Right. And then all sorts of identity issues, right. Associated with, with starting a company and, and running it for six years and then selling it. So I feel like I was able to separate my identity from it. And then 11 months later, it came right back into my life. So that wasn't the most ideal thing for me emotionally. It was great financially, but emotionally it, it wasn't ideal. And what I found myself in was about probably not even a year later, I was bored and I was discontent and I'm a builder. <laughs> and I remember that too. I totally remember it. Totally. I'm a builder. I'm not a maintainer. So that began a long quest, probably a year, a year long quest of really reviewing my identity and then reviewing what I wanted out of life. So it really made me question for the probably the first time in my life, like what I actually wanted in life. Which a lot of people don't ask that question. I think all of us should be asking that, but you don't have answers because you don't stop to think like that. Yeah. A lot of people don't ask them and, and even fewer people are able to answer that with clarity. And I think the other reality is a lot of people just start doing life. They go to, they go to school, they get a job, they get married and there's just, there's not enough space or time. And there's no even inclination like to even think about asking that question, let alone providing yourself the space and the time to do it. But I am curious. So obviously when you're time in government and then shifting forward to buzz shift, what's different now at Eden Green as you're leading kind of like your third company, what lessons have you taken from those two into this, this third one? And, and what different emphases do you think you're placing on, on how you're building the business and how you're building the team? So a couple of comparisons, and then I'll follow up with a couple of contrasts about some of the similarities from BuzzShift to Eden Green, I would say that I learned from government was I was very purposeful with building BuzzShift as was my business partner about it being catered to our lifestyle, if you will. So back before remote work was a thing, back before this sort of emphasis on work-life balance, we really instituted and it was knee-jerk reaction to me working so long and so the hours and the intensity of government and especially pre and post 9-11 and the position that I was in really didn't allow for any sort of separation, any sort of between work and life. And it, again, it caused a real conflict in our marriage. But in BuzzShift, what I ended up implementing was very early on was I'm not working on the weekends. I'm not checking emails from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. I'm not emailing my employees in that time period. And so I, I really carved out time for my family, which when you're doing a startup is immensely, immensely painful to do that, but it served us well in the long run. So we were one of the few agencies I still like, I mean, it's still remarkable. I've got uh, former clients as well as employees who just are amazed how we were able to carve that out out of an agency. If you can imagine a, an ad agency, one, not working overnighters, but two, just telling clients like, hey, from the get-go as ground rules, for working uh, with each other and to have a better working relationship. We know what's an emergency and what's not an emergency. And unless it's an emergency, if you email us at 7 or 8 p.m., like just expect a response, you know, 7 or 8 a.m. the next day. There's no reason to respond at 9 or 10 or 11 at night. So I think that has carried over <clears throat> to the way that I work here. I've, I've even told most of my employees like, hey, I may text you or email you or slack you at night, but don't respond until the morning. And they, for the most part, they most 
they know that some of them will respond and I will, I'll have to actually say like, Hey, this is for tomorrow morning. I'm just putting this now because my mind is on it and I, my mind works 24 seven. So I'm just putting this as a reminder, as a bookmark, but don't respond until the next morning. And because I, you know, if I'm doing that, I don't want force that, you know, force something that's contrary to what I'm trying to operate in my life. I don't want to force that on my employees or my teammates. So I would say that's a, that was a similarity between bus shift and, and eating green. I would say a contrast is, and it's one of the reasons that I actually jumped to eating green is because there's a, what our friends at Praxis will call a redemptive bent or framework that's in place at, at eating green that, that is not, that wasn't at bus shift. So to back up, because I was so unhappy, I really had to clarify what I wanted uh, while I was at bus shift. And there, there are three things that over the course of the year that I was going through this, honestly, I was going through a depression and I really had to reconstitute what my life looked like. But there are three things that became very clear that I wanted to do. One was I wanted to run a hardware software company. I had been there, done that, and gotten the, the M&A t-shirt for professional services, right? Two, I wanted to have an exponential impact on community and on the society around me. So for every one unit of effort that I put out, I wanted to see a 10 to 20x return on culture and society. And the third is I wanted to run what what's known in the praxis world as, as a redemptive organization. And that's where employees are blessed. They're treated generously. It's where leaders eat last. Leaders are sacrificial in nature. And it's where it's where society is not just advanced, but it's renewed and restored. So I had those three things in mind, which none of which existed in bus shift, right? Just for various reasons. And so for me to do that, I would either have to stay at bus shift and totally transform the company, or I would have to go do something else. And uh, I think we have a friend, I think a common friend named Terry Looper, who has written a, a book called Sacred Pace. And one of the thoughts that he has in Sacred Pace is this thought of getting in neutral as a part of your decision-making process. And the, the idea around getting in neutral is just like a car, you know, in neutral it will go wherever gravity takes it and there will be no resistance, right? If it goes, if the gravity is pulling it forward, if it's on an incline, then it'll go forward, no resistance, decline, go backward, no resistance. And if it's flat, it'll just stay there and no resistance. Anyway, of those, it's fine. And so I had to be in neutral as these sort of clarity of thought, these clear formulations of what I wanted to do came into focus. And I had to be all right if I stayed at bus shift. I had to be all right if it was something else. And I had to be all right with waiting. So I think that sort of getting in neutral then allowed me to be more thoughtful and be have a clearer vision and just have my eyes set on the horizon and be all right with either either way. And so when Eden Green came along, the opportunity for that came along. It checked all three of those boxes probably nine months after I had to find them. And it was just an easy switch to be like, okay. This is, this is what I'm supposed to do. These three things, I have have clarity about them. I've filtered them through family and friends, and I've gotten in neutral. And so it was, it was an easy jump. And you've been there how long now? I've been there for three years. And so all of like everything you're wanting to do, have you been able to do? Yeah, we're getting there. I would say it's still checking all three of the boxes, right? It's a, it is a hardware software company. It's hardware. It's a patented hardware to grow plants the way that we do. It's having, even now in our infant, our, I'll call it our growth stage, it's having an, an exponential impact 
on our industry. It's having an exponential impact on our community. And I really do think it's, it will have an exponential impact on the way that we feed people. And then from a redemptive standpoint, we've been able to introduce a lot of these frameworks and, and establish concepts and frameworks within the company that have really blessed the employees. So what does that look like practically um, when you think about like, you know, actually blessing employees, you know, cause it sounds good in principle, but what, what I also think sometimes is how do we make that more tangible for people? What are some of the things that you've been able to do or that you get excited about doing as you think about supporting your team members? So one of the things that's just very basic with our company is that because we are located in one place, because we do 11 to 13 harvests a year, and because we're just not going anywhere in terms of location, we're allowing people to not engage in sort of this migrant labor that's chasing after harvests up and down the California coasts. And we're allowing them, people who don't have college degrees, to make a solid, you know, living day's wage with health benefits and to do it in such a way that, you know, it's in an industry that's by all measures is is one of the fastest growing and one of the most technologically advanced industries out there today, right? So it's really providing a platform for a new type of job that wouldn't be available to most folks in that socioeconomic range. I think the second thing is on a practical level too, is the way that very early on we instituted just health benefits and just employee benefits in general. So everyone after probationary period gets full health benefits which is very uncommon in the ag industry. Everyone gets uh, four months of maternity leave. So, and that was really born out of my own experience and my wife's experience of just eight weeks, 12 weeks was just not enough. They just, these moms just need a little more time with these babies in order to feel comfortable putting them in daycare or, or putting them in the hands of a, a, you know, of a care service provider. So really, adding that extra month. And I, you know, I, I remember having the discussion with my CFO at the time and he's like, man, why are you like, there are a lot of hills to die on <laughs> with investors of a startup in your, I mean, you're staking a claim on a four month maternity leave. And in addition, it was, I think it's two months of spousal support. And then we've got a month of adoption, two months of adoption, and then a month of foster leave. And so said, you know, why do you want to really stake that claim? I'm like, man, because that changes the dynamic of a family when the mom is able to spend that much time with a baby from the get-go, when a, a spouse is able to spend that much time bonding with that baby. And then even the, the idea, I mean, it was tough. I've not heard of other folks really addressing the adoption and the foster uh, aspect of parenting. You know, again, I think it's for me and where my faith is, we're, we're really strong proponents of adoption and foster. And so why would we not allow for that and, and bless the employees to even have that option if they wanted to? So for you, Eddie, like, I'm curious, cause we kind of jumped forward in kind of your career all the way to Eden Green, but even rewinding the clock before your time with government, what would you say have been some major drivers in what have shaped who you are and how you think about the world. I mean, just the pathway you've even gone on into government and then from government into starting a company and now thinking deeply about the role of a CEO and, and loving people well. What were some formative things as you think about 
your growing up years, even maybe good and bad things that you're like, I recognize this and I, I don't want this to be a part of my story moving forward. Or these are things that have been really helpful in the way I think about the world. Yeah. I mean, if, if you want to pull in my therapist, I'm sure we can patch him into this call. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we just talked about that actually. So I would say some positive drivers are, and they're kind of one in the same, but one is my parents, they're immigrants. They came to the United States in 1970. My mom came with about $70 in her pocket. My dad came with about $110 in his pocket. So I'm very aware of where my parents came from, the shoulders upon which I'm standing. And then also the compare and contrast of my cousins who are back in the Philippines and the life that they have, which is full of joy and, and family. And it's also very different socioeconomically. So I can, I'm fully appreciative of what my parents have afforded me by making that huge jump of moving across the seas in the seventies with snail mail and, you know, no FaceTime, no long distance calling, no nothing being totally separated from their families to start a new life. So I think that's been a big driver for me is just wanting to honor my parents in the way that they've made sacrifices. I think a negative driver is wanting to honor my parents and make good on the sacrifices that they've had. So there's, especially in the church, there's this idea of prevailing idea, especially among Southern Baptists, which my parents were, which is a totally different story of performance-based acceptance. And this, this idea that you have to perform in order to be accepted, right? To be valued versus the idea of acceptance-based performance, where because you're accepted, because you're valued, then you go and do the things that are an outpouring of of appreciation and, and gratefulness for that acceptance. And I grew up on a sort of performance-based acceptance model. And so that really drove me to perform. I would say another thing is I'm the son of immigrants and I grew up in a relatively white society. I grew up in a, my parents had the foresight to move into a, a pretty good part of town and just scraped and clawed to have a house that they're still in 50 years later in a good part of Houston. And, but so the flip side of that is I grew up a, around a lot of folks who did not look like me. So I'm known as what's, what's known as a third culture kid in the house was one culture, the Filipino culture outside of the house was, you know, predominantly white culture. And inside of me was this amalgamation, this third culture. Right. But as a part of that being a third culture kid, I didn't fit in anywhere. And I felt a little bit left out at times and ostracized or a little behind. And so a lot of what's driving me to this day is not wanting to feel left out, to feel that I belong. And so if you talk to my counselor, he'll tell you like, it's not even people pleasing for me anymore. I'm past that. It's proving to myself that I matter. And on the good days, I know that I matter because of God's love for me and my identity in him and my performance is driven by that acceptance. But on the bad days, I feel like I've got something to prove to myself. That's where the, sort of the negative side of performance comes in. And is that something as you were growing up that you actually recognized about yourself? Like, were you able to name those feelings then or is this something later? Oh, this is something way, way later. It took me 40 plus years to figure that out. I wish I'd been able to recognize that earlier. And I think that's 
that is an ongoing conversation with my kids and it's really an internal struggle. So my, my wife, blonde hair, blue eyed, lovely as can be, she did not grow up in that environment. And so as a result, our parenting is very different. There's ongoing conversations of like, man, why are you so hard on the kids? Like, Hey, what's the real motivation behind academic performance? And you know, what's the motivation between, you know, honestly, what's the motivation behind me wanting to artificially create resistance and hardship so that they can learn grit and determination? <laughs> <laughs> we're, now we're getting really deep into parenting, right? But it's thought it's God's honest truth. Like the performance, the performance based acceptance part of me is like, they need to know hard work. But then what creeps in is like, if they don't work hard, will I accept them? On Thursday afternoon in March of 2022, Jamie Cantor, a vet tech and animal lover, was in a fender bender. Although she initially felt only a bit of soreness, the pain rapidly worsened over the next few days. She eventually went to the ER where doctors told her that if they did not operate soon, she might lose her ability to walk. After the surgery, Jamie's slow recovery made work difficult, and it was even harder to make ends meet. Then her medical bill arrived, and she was shocked to find that it totaled over $43,000. Fortunately, Jamie learned about a new, free initiative called Dollar Four that helps people navigate the confusing process of charity care. She reached out to them, and they immediately responded and offered to submit all the necessary paperwork for her to apply for financial assistance. A few months later, Jamie received an adjusted medical bill, the total owed was now only $1,300 instead of $43,000. Over $40,000 of her debt had been completely eliminated thanks to the work of $4. To remain tax-exempt, nonprofit hospitals must offer financial assistance programs to low- to middle-income patients. But with little federal oversight of these programs, most hospitals do the bare minimum to educate patients about them, which means patients don't receive the financial assistance they should. In 2021 alone, hospitals reaped $17 billion in tax benefits from their nonprofit status, most of which have gone to charity care or community investment. There are millions of people in the U.S. like Jamie Cantor who carry on unfair financial burden due to medical costs. Dollar Four is working to crush medical bills by making charity care known, easy, and fair. To date, Dollar Four has eliminated over $20 million of medical debt, and they aren't stopping anytime soon. If you or someone you know are facing medical debt and don't know where to start in applying for financial assistance, check out dollar4.org today. And now back to the episode. Well, Eddie, what I, one thing I do appreciate is you sharing the fact that you are talking with a therapist. And, you know, more and more, I, I really try to encourage people, if they are, just to make, to normalize it. Because here you are, the CEO of a, of a fast-growing company, started and sold a previous company, worked in government, seemingly successful, but we all have those things that we need to process and work through. And I just think the more people specifically in leadership can be honest about where they struggle and where they need help and where they need people to show up for them, the more we can normalize that reality and make it like, oh, you do that? Okay, great. I, I don't feel as weird that I'm also talking to someone about things that are going on in my life. So I, I would just appreciate you just sharing that. Well, and I would go and it's so Eddie, I've known you a while and love your heart. You know, I just think it so much of who you are is wrapped up in 
the hardships and the struggles and, you know, and that stuff. But I would go as far as to go, even if you think you're healthy, you're not, and you need help. Like, you know, I, the number of people that I've sent to a therapist who would say, came from a great home, blah, 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 that other stuff. Then they start meeting with the therapist and they're like, oh, I really had these issues because it's like you said, going, we don't stop to feel, we don't stop to think, we don't stop to, you know, ask ourselves, how are you really doing right now? Because we don't like those answers. And so I really, you know, again, what I've enjoyed watching you is I just go, you're real. Like it was so the only thing I do want to point out to people is you tell them what you did for Bush. Like that, this is something that I know a lot of people and a lot of amazing people, but this part of you, I think is, you know, again, I think incredible. Just give, just give a quick, this is what I did. Well, first Bryce and Brian, thanks for saying that. I think normalizing therapy counseling, it's one of the keys to just overall life success. I think I can say this, like when my daughter was 17, we sent her to a counselor. She's 19 now. So she's been going to a counselor for two years. And it was just the realization of like, hey, we have screwed you up just like every other parent has screwed their kids up. And you might as well start it now, right? Like just start the repair work now while you're still under our roof. And giving her tools right now. Giving her tools. And I, it's helped her a lot. It Selfishly, it's helped my relationship with her too. Because let's be super honest, like, a lot of her therapy work has not been around her and Rachel's relationship. It's been out around her and my relationship. And she's told me that. She's like, Dad, you, you know the majority of what I talk about is you. I'm like, yes, I get that. So uh, appreciate y'all saying that. Okay, so for Bush Sr., so this just to specify for George H.W. Bush, uh, as we called him, 41. I was an intern in my junior year in college at, at Texas A&M. Whoop. And I had a buddy who said, Hey, Eddie, you know, I need help. I'm an intern in his personal office in Houston and I need help. And what he also didn't tell me was like, Hey, I need a place to stay and your parents are in Houston. So can we, you know, can we sleep there the night before and then get up and work in, in the office the next day? It's like, sure, let's do it. So I, I go in and he introduces me to the Bush team and basically sight unseen, they look me up and down. They're like, okay, you were in the Corps of Cadets with, with my buddy Clay. Got it. You're in the band, Aggie band. Got it. You're basically hired, right? So that's how I got to be an intern for George H.W. Bush. Really stringent application process. So I start like any good intern, I just start filing letters. And the cool thing about H.W. was 41 wrote probably eight to 10 letters a day, like handwritten letters. And he typed probably a dozen more. It was ridiculous. It was, but it was, I look back at it now, it's just like his email, right? Like you hand wrote those emails. So the also the cool thing about it, because he was a former president, it was all going into the, his archives. And so he had the foresight to copy and file letters from back in the 70s when he was a congressman, all the way through, you know, UN uh, ambassador, through CIA director, all that stuff, right? He kept all of these letters to and from the people that he was writing. So for instance, Maggie Thatcher, he would have a file and it would just be letters to and from the prime minister of Great Britain going back to the eighties, right? Cause he knew it was going to be in the archives. So every letter that I would get and file, I would read, and then I would read the whole backstory and I'd cover because gosh, it was going in the archives anyway. Anyone could read them. 
So, and I asked first, obviously, maybe, but so I just started reading them and I did at one point ask his chief of staff, like, Hey, can I read these? Like, what can't I read? And she's like, you can basically read anything. The only stipulation is you got to get your work done. So don't bottleneck it. So for every letter that I filed and copied, I would read the whole, another 10. It'd be today's version of getting someone's email and just going back through their email archives. So you get an email and you just read everything, right? So I did that for about six months. And then the chief of staff said, hey, you've read enough letters. I said, yeah. She's like, do you think you can write like him? Of course, my answer was yes. (laughs) Horrible, right? (laughs) What was I thinking? So I actually started like ghostwriting drafts, letter drafts for him that he would, you know, mark up and then either rewrite or type out and then send on its way. So I was a junior and senior in college and was essentially ghostwriting for a former president. It's kind of cool. What I would challenge any of the listeners with is going, I would like one better story than that. Because when you told me that, I'm like, oh my gosh, like that is like next level. So especially someone with that stature and you're a junior, you know, senior in college. They would probably be horrified if this got out to the larger general public, but that was it. And they... It was great. I mean, again, I was audacious enough to ask to read all that. And they were they were smart enough to then in turn say, hey, can we utilize this nerd brainiac who's just reading everything? And you have to say, though, that has to have influenced how you think as a human, reading all of those letters to and from and, you know, getting backstory and because it's like you're reading history in a sense. I was reading history. Some of the more meaningful ones, you know, I won't share the details, but some of the more meaningful ones were letters that he wrote to his kids and his grandkids. He wrote a kind of a, like a CC all family letter, if you will, which was, I mean, really, really profound coming from him and Barbara and just their appreciation for the way that their family had grown, which at the time, if you kind of knew some of the family dynamics between some of his, one of his sons and, and the rest of the family, and then, the way that another one of his sons and, and his kids, one of his kids kind of went south, you look back at it like, man, that that took a lot of guts to write authentically. And it was also a way of a granddad just, again, trying to pull the family back in and saying, hey, one team here, right? We're all, this is huge now. We've all got different beliefs. We've all gone different ways, but man, it, we're still one family. Uh, so that was that's pretty interesting. I mean, the power of a written letter is pretty crazy. You know, I think if you, there's some polls that I've seen that 60% of people, I'm pulling that number, but it's pretty high, would prefer a handwritten note over an email. And how, because it takes time, it takes effort, it takes takes thoughtfulness and just the power of that. I remember growing up, my dad, when I was in college, literally every single day I was away from home. And it continued when I was in the army station on the DMZ. He wrote me a note, handwritten every day, every day. And I've got them. Whoa. Yeah. And it, I still have them. And it, it meant so much. But you just think about that as we're, you know, shaping and forming our own families and our children. So it's it's cool to hear that Bush did that for his family. But just the power of that, just writing a simple note to your kids and your grandkids. Even thinking about like a note, a note that might that they might receive at a, on a special occasion that you may not be there for. And going ahead and thinking about that in advance. So related to that, I have friends. I wasn't able to pull this off. My friends had way more foresight than I did. But 
my oldest is 19. Their oldest was born six weeks after her. But when he was born, my friends wrote him a letter for his 18th birthday. And so as he graduated, like graduation party, right? Family's all there. They pull it out and they're like, hey, Abe, we wrote this for you 18 years ago. Want you to have it. And it was just like this letter from newborn, firstborn kid, letter from you know, newly minted parents to this kid of like, Hey, here are hopes and dreams for you, right? Here's what we hope after 18 years, when you open this, that we've tried to provide in your life, right? Here are the, some of the patterns that, that we've set in place that you may not have even realized existed, but here are the patterns. I want to show you the patterns and here's how we hope that will, that will help you in your next stage of life going into, into university. So that was really powerful. And what you could do is lie and write it when they're 17 and really (laughs) (laughs) forecast. Right. Yeah. (laughs) I might still do that for Rory's college graduation. I'll do that. Good idea, Brian. I'm spitballing ideas and tell her you wrote it when she was one. Okay. Let's say perfect scenario. You end up selling Eden green and you know, you make a gajillion dollars because you're that good. What's next. I mean, I know you're going to do Disneyland because I want to go with you. But after Disneyland, then what's next? So I think there are two things that are currently on my mind. I don't know if they'll come to fruition, but I'm going to pursue them intellectually to their logical end and see where they go, right? Uh, The first is this idea of sabbaticals. So I've seen it in a lot of other founders. I've seen it in CEOs. I've also seen it just in people who have been working for a long period of time in the same position and they they just need a break. And the current business setup, especially and then the current nonprofit setup, especially where, you know, nonprofits are they're basically paid volunteers in their respective workplaces. It's not really set up to have any sort of meaningful rest time. And ironically for leaders, CEOs, nonprofit leaders, and thought workers, Rest time is what you need to recharge more so emotionally and mentally than physically. So if there's not a framework for that set up, then people just go until they're totally burnt. And then they just, they jump to the next one. Like we were amazed when people are like, yeah, I'm going to take a week off before my next gig. Like, wow, like that's kudos to you. Like they really should be taking three to six months off before their next gig, but they don't have either the financial wherewithal or if they're a nonprofit and they just want to take a sabbatical that the board members are like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, we're going to approve to, to pay you for six months or three months. And you're not actually going to contribute to the nonprofit work. And what about fundraising? What about whatever? There's a significant gap in the ability to rest, uh, which is so needed right now in the workforce. So my thought is my running sort of thought is what if I can supply or fund a three to six month sabbatical with some frameworks, right? And Bryce, you've been you've been helpful in helping me think through these. And so has so has Andy Crouch about what are the frameworks for a sabbatical. And, and I think Andy's got a three sort of three-legged stool of sabbaticals. One is deep rest. The second is pilgrimage, what he calls pilgrimage, like physically getting to another and changing your physical environment. And the third one is is uh, creative activity, and in, in his terms, create activity with the spirit. So, what if I could fund a sabbatical that also helps put a framework 
and funds those three things. So that's what I'm currently thinking about. And then obviously I'm built to scale things. Like my, my coach, a guy named Pete Richardson, really helped me define like what I'm built to do. And I'm built to scale and scale organizations to a large size using systems thinking and framework and then simultaneously developing deep relationships. So always thinking about scaling. So then how do I scale this? So is it something, a sabbatical where I fund the first one or the first two or the first three, and then I invite friends and colleagues alongside who have the financial wherewithal to say, hey, partner with me on this. And I've got the framework, you fund someone, you fund someone that you know for three months or six months and have them do it and sort of create this movement that's really, I don't want to institutionalize it. I want it to be something where they have friends, they have a network of folks that they know need those sabbaticals. And then we can start to make pretty significant inroads into the health and well-being of some of these founders and leaders and nonprofit organizations that need the rest. And then the other one I'm thinking about, Brian, I think you alluded to it earlier is this idea of, of personally, and it's a really a challenge to you know the folks who are listening is like, I've taken the time to look at the lineages and the legacies of people who came before me on both sides of my family, both mine and Rachel's side. And there are two commonalities. A lot of, you know, I've got friends who have a lineage of education of educators or a lineage of maybe pastors, if you will. But for me and my, you know, Rachel's and my families, we have a lineage of entrepreneurs. Then we have a lineage of vocational ministry, I'll call it, in both sides. And so what would it look like to create some sort of family bank where I was able to, and you know, my cousins were able to start to fund other entrepreneurs within our family or close group of friends that we could take a stake in right? A, you know, 10% stake for X amount of money or 20% stake for X amount of money. And it doesn't have to be anything related to what I'm doing, but that it would, you know, it would run through a family sort of advisory team that could hone their business plan and then set them up for success, but then also provide back office support so that the things that they do best and most entrepreneurs do best is, you know, create ideas and run with them and sort of the accounting and background and all that you know, op stuff could be pooled by this family office. So creating a family bank that then would fund that and would have a stake in these businesses. And then the profits from those businesses would then go to fund the other side of the family, which is the vocational ministry through some sort of family foundation. It's nothing new. As I've mentioned this to the others, in, especially in the wealth management arena, they're like, oh yeah, you should look at this person and you should look at this family. You should look at this. And so the framework is not new. But I think the idea of looking at our families, I'll call it comparative or competitive strengths and weaknesses, and looking at our lineages and legacies is something I don't think a lot of people do. And looking at their name, right? The family name and, and how important that was in biblical times and in ancient times, just the importance of the family name and the family legacy. Well, what I love about it, Eddie is like both of those are very much you like the idea of sabbatical, it's one, you've experienced it, you've seen the benefits of it, the fruit of it, uh, so to speak, uh, for you and your family as you've transitioned from one thing to the next, and it's been quite impactful. And then this idea of the of the family bank, I mean, your passion for people and building community and helping people in their journey 
I've just seen that as a part of your life, just in the interactions we've had. And so I, I love both of those and I hope both of them come to fruition as you think about the future. I appreciate that. You know, Brian, when you were talking, it actually, it made a connection for me. I think one of the drivers from growing up of not feeling included and not feeling valued has driven me to make the connections and to make an ease of connections like I have. And then, you know, ultimately to have this network of friends that I love, like I find a lot of joy in just connecting people. And I think it's probably driven intrinsically by, by me as a kiddo wanting to be connected to others. And so now that I have the ability to connect, I've got no, you know, no pride of ownership over a relationship and I'm happy to connect to people that I know, like, and trust. Right. So that's meaningful. Cause it's even, it was interesting watching you at this event we were at, cause you would, even the way you positioned your body, you always included, if someone walked up, you immediately where I watched other people not do that. Like, cause it was like, I'm in a conversation with someone someone walks up and they're just not acknowledged where I go. You are, it was just consistent the whole weekend. Like I just watched you over and over again, making sure everyone was comfortable, had a place, had a voice anyway. So I just think, yeah, your brokenness has given you some pretty good life skills. I don't know how you make that into your kids. So ostracize your kids, be mean to them. And then they'll be nice, nice to other people. Cause they'll feel left out. <laughs> so in all honesty, Eddie, you are truly, I mean, it's been great knowing you over the years, but going, I just, we ran into each other. We hung out at an event here recently and I love watching you care for people. And I think some of it goes back to just your, like your inner struggle with feeling like you're someone, but how you can make people feel special. Like I'd watched you take care of people and making sure introductions are done and you do it with such ease and, and with such joy. for listening to this episode of More Than Profit. We hope you've been encouraged by our conversation. And if nothing else, we hope in some small way, we can continue to normalize therapy and counseling in everyone's lives, especially for the leaders who often project that they have it all together. And even when everything in the world is burning around them. To stay up to date with Eddie and his journeys in leadership and life, follow along on Twitter at Eddie Badrina or check out his website, badrina.com to learn more. To stay up to date with More Than Profit, Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, drop us a review so others can find us as well. Don't forget to check out our new website at morethanprofit.fm where we have additional content and past episodes. And we'll be posting some exciting news about upcoming live More Than Profit events. You can also learn more about what's ahead by following us on Twitter at listen underscore MTP. More Than Profit is a production of Access Ventures and is hosted by Bryce Butler and Brian McKay. Our executive producer is Crystal Escoval, and our associate producer is Bryn McKay. Audio production assistance is provided by Resonate Recording. Our theme song today was No Man's Land by Slapstorm. I'm Bryn McKay, and you've been listening to More Than Profit.